The Boys of Tech with Edwin Herman and Brett King. Thank you very much. Welcome along to episode number 36 of The Boys of Tech for Monday the 28th of September 2009. My name is Edwin Herman, my co-host Brett King. Welcome along. Hello. Brett, uh, you know, your iTunes keeps wanting to uh, download updates. What's with that? I don't know. Two updates in the space of a week? That's, what did they do wrong? (laughs) It makes you wonder. It does. And and what's the, what's, why does it keep asking me to install an iPhone configuration utility as an update. I don't have an iPhone. I've never had an iPhone. <laughs> I've sure? never had a configuration utility on there for it to update. That's but still, it, it really wants to update this iPhone utility that I don't have. <laughs> it's I, bizarre. I know. It's funny because <laughs> Apple these days, Apple will, will release something and then within a week, there'll be an update. Yeah. It's like, why don't you just wait a week? Do some yeah, more research indeed. and then ship it, you know? Yes. <laughs> we aren't your beta testers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, I think you we ask are. Us to be. <laughs> well, if you ask us to be, I'm sure, you know, of the vast majority of people who use Apple products would be quite happy to be beta testers. Uh, they just generally, people like to know <laughs> when they're being a beta tester, though. Exactly. <laughs> so have you updated your iTunes now? I have. It still does the annoying thing of not auto-detecting when my media folders have been updated. So. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. I still have to tell it, you know, hey, look at that folder again. I'm sure you'll find something new. How do you even do that? I don't even do that. <sighs> God, it took me a little while. <laughs> it's in the file menu. Is it? Add okay. folder. Just re-add the same folder. Oh, I oh yeah, to library. I didn't know you could do that. You know, I've never really explored iTunes. I've, I kind of just don't really use it much. Oh, I use it all the time. Oh, do you? Well, I've got an iPod, so. Oh, well, yeah, well I used to use it a lot when I had an iPod. That's true. But uh, the, only for the iPod syncing of, uh, of podcasts. Yeah, I use it for all of my playlists and syncing around, doing what people use iTunes for when they have an iPod. Well, you mean <laughs> up- updating it? Yeah. <laughs> Keeping track of your music library. Yeah. Well, Looking onto the iTunes store, seeing what's new. Well, actually, yeah, I do. Trying do, out the free sample. Yeah, I do do Not that. Not having to pay for it. Yep, I do I do, do that as well. And I, you know the the uh, yeah the single of the week that you're referring to is quite good. The last one, or the one before last, was really good. I don't recall what it was, but yeah, it was. I remember thinking it, yeah. it was the first good one for quite a while. Okay. Well, if they if iTunes keeps track of the ones, our listeners now know that the one before the last one was a good one. <laughs> yeah. But they'll have to look it up themselves. <laughs> I'll tell you what I did like uh, that wasn't so recent, but was uh, somewhere, somewhere in the last couple of months was Road to Nowhere. Road to Nowhere? Yeah, it's a remake of... Um, actually, let me just play it to you. Yeah, it is that one. 
Did it's you, a, a did, more mellow sort of version of oh, who did that? Uh, you wrote to know where um, yeah. Talking Heads. Talking Heads, that's the one. Yeah. You know, I don't usually go for the mellow songs, but that one's really nicely done. So I don't know if I can keep that on the podcast. I might have to pay some royalties. No, yeah, you might. Well, I think you'll have to. <laughs> okay. You might want to cut that out. Either that or I can write a check for 20 cents for both listeners. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> All righty, let's kick off the show for this. Yeah, it's been another week. It's We're an hour earlier now because of daylight savings here in New Zealand. It's just taken effect. Yeah, completely snuck up on me. I was I was playing WoW as I do on of of a weekend evening, and glanced at the clock and it was said it was you know half past three, and I was like, what the hell? What the hell? How did it become half past three? I did not <laughs> think I had been playing for that long, <laughs> so I'd completely missed the changeover. So I then checked my phone and my my clock, and I was like, ah. Okay, well, my computer knows it's daylight saving. Good for it, because I had no clue. <laughs> you're, not meant to, you're not meant to check your phone and clock. You're meant to check your smoke alarms. Well, my smoke alarms are built in and maintained by a building person. Well, so well that's, that is kind of handy. Check. <laughs> that is kind of, I must admit, those built-in ones are really good, because you don't have to change your batteries, which is the thing that people hate doing the most. Yeah, because you forget. You forget, and you leave it. It's just one of those things that isn't really important because you'd never have a fire, right? It's out of sight, out of mind. Yep. People install their smoke alarms, usually in the wrong sorts of places, and yeah, forget about them. Well, I tell you, you know what? Something I didn't know. I, I went on a uh, a fire fighting course with Wormald. Yeah, and I've that, been on the same one. Have you? Did you? They, oh, yeah, yeah. They, I have to keep my I have to keep myself up to date on those. It's part of my requirements. Well, that's where I learned that you don't necessarily put them on the ceiling. You put them on the wall, just above head height. Yep. But everyone puts them on the ceiling. Yeah. Well, well I think you know, put them on the ceiling so they catch all the smoke. <laughs> How's it going to detect the smoke if it's not on the ceiling? The only thing it catches on the ceiling is the burnt toast. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> you know when dinner's ready when I'm cooking. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's one of the things that we've been really conscious of here with our built-in fire alarm smoke detectors is, you know, you can't just turn off the smoke detector when you're doing a fire because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's built in. <laughs> so yeah. there is a you've got to be a little more careful <laughs> in the amount of smoke you produce. <laughs> well, actually, what I'd like to know is, I mean, neither, neither of us smoke, but... Can you smoke indoors with a smoke alarm? Mm, no, no, not too close to it because the smoke from a cigarette will set off most smoke, well, most smoke alarms. So what do smokers do? Do they not have smoke alarms in their households? Uh, I don't have them in those rooms. Put them further away from your smoking chair. Or smoke outside, I guess. Well, they're, they're pretty sensitive. Uh, you know, I, it wouldn't surprise me if you were having a cigarette in one corner of the room, it would set off the uh, alarm in the other corner. It, they're, they're really sensitive, those things. Well, some of them are. Some of them are a little more, you know, robust for general use in a household. That one always goes off. It's annoying. There's one that goes off all the time. It's really annoying. We've taken, <laughs> we've, you know what we've done? We've taken the battery out, and I can just... Wow, <laughs> yep, that makes it a brilliant... It's a great smoke alarm there, well, Edward. 
Uh, you know, I, I was just saying, I could, I could just about see myself on those ads where the fire service come knocking on your door spontaneously, point a camera in your face and say, uh, you know, are you, where are your smoke alarms and why are they not working? Oh, oh I took the battery out because it kept going off. And, you know, you don't want to be one of those people on TV. No. <laughs> so I, I better go and fix that and get a new one. So. Yes, if it keeps going off, then you get it, get it checked. Either that or I should get my or toaster get yourself checked. a new one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Maybe that's why. So the first story up for this week, the question of when you buy news, are you buying the medium or the content? What do you say, Brett? Well, you're buying the medium, aren't you? Because why else would the price vary depending on where you get it or what it comes in? Whether you buy the newspaper, whether you look at it online, whether or not it comes on CD or something else, you're... You're buying the medium that the news comes on. The news has never been paid for itself. Yeah, you know what? If you think about it, when there's a major news event, 9-11, 7-7, even Princess Diana, mm-hmm. the papers didn't double their prices for this amazing, important news. Nope. It was a still yeah. the same old dollar twenty for exactly. your daily paper. It was still the same price for the paper. It was still the same price for the magazine. You might have gone out and actually bought one where you were, as you might not have previously, but it, it, you weren't paying for the, the content. You were paying for the medium that that news was being delivered in, not for the news itself. So why is this important? Like, what's the effect that this, what's the importance of that on the, the way that news is going to, going to be delivered in the future? You got a good question there, Edwin. I think you should answer that one. Well, I think, I think the point is that people are saying that you're just not going to be able to sell news on the internet because for the very reason that you're only able to charge for the medium through which you're selling, the cost of bandwidth, right, as yep. opposed to the cost of pay, of you know physical pulp, you know, paper. Yep. So you're not selling the content, you're selling the medium, and the medium is next to nothing, you know, a, yep. few, a few bytes. The medium is next to nothing, and as we've talked about multiple times when we've talked about, you know, micropayments for news and when this news Murdoch and his plans came out, was that there are so many alternative places that you can get the content, the news, for free, that why would you pay for it? Well, in fact, what you've just said is exactly what Eric Schmidt has said, uh, you know, CEO of Google has come out and said. He said that, Exactly. Yeah, he said basically that for general news, there are so many free sources that the marginal value of paying is not justified based on the incremental value of quantity. And yeah. he goes on to say something that you said in this very podcast several episodes ago, and that is that for general news, you're not going to be able to sell it, but for niche, special niche markets, you may just be able to pull a nice tidy profit. Oh, precisely, because reiter- you know, reiterating what I said last time is for general news, for that information, there are so many places you can get it, you know, dozens and dozens of different places you can get that information in different medium for free, whereas specialist niche markets, things like what Rupert has with the Wall Street Journal and things like that, those are specialist markets. That is the prime resource for, you know, for news in those specialist markets, you can charge for that because you've got a, a group and you've got the only source of that information. But for general news, stuff that turns up in your, you know, your regular Sunday Times or you know, Daily News or whatever your newspaper happens to be or whatever news website it is that you watch, yeah, 
there are so many other places you can get exactly the same news for free that there's no way you're going to be able to sustainably try and serve that up and make people pay for it. I think you should be the CEO of Google. Oh, I'd love to be. (laughs) (laughs) But yes. (laughs) I think we're, we're just on the same page as the CEO of Google, which is pretty cool. Well, the thing is, it's it, it really, if you analyze it, it does make sense because, as you said, news is everywhere. And we talked about this uh, an episode or two ago as well about how difficult it's going to be selling general news because unless everybody, and I mean absolutely everybody, charges for, it, for news, mm-hmm. it's not going to work. Oh, it's fifth form it, economics, isn't it? Supply and demand. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's... When you control the supply then, you know, you can charge for the demand. But when you do not control the supply, and the supply is basically infinite, which it is for general sorts of news information, then the demand, you you don't control the supply, so you can't dictate how much it costs. So going back to this uh, notion of paying for the medium, not the content, if you're going to sell news on the internet, you can really only charge probably about a cent for a page, less than that, in fact. Less than that, yeah. Because that's that, you know, it it's less. It costs less than a cent to deliver a page of news on the internet. Precisely. All you'd be able to do is offset the cost of the bandwidth to deliver it from your machine to the consumer. So I still don't know where this is going to leave the the news industry, to be honest, because if if news just can't be sold. I guess they can still retain ad-funded sites. I guess. Yeah. In fact, I don't know why they why the, I don't know why they're trying to get away from that because, I mean, apart from the fact that there's a drop in in advertising revenue, you could put that down to the fact that we're in a recession, or pr- others say we're coming out of a recession. But we've you know we've been in yeah. a recession, mm-hmm. uh, and so if 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 that's the reason, then surely advertising revenue is going to pick up again soon. Yeah, precisely. One of the first things businesses generally ditch in a recession situation is, in an economic downturn, is advertising. And staff development. uh, And staff development. Um, Two things which generally would be stupid to ditch during an economic downturn because advertising to keep people coming to get your to purchase your product is key in those sorts of situations. You've got to be able to sell up your product enough to make people still, you know, in money press times, want to purchase it. It just seems counterproductive. So I, I, I don't know why they're going down this route. Why does Murdoch want to charge for news? I, I, I don't really know. Doesn't make sense. It could be a, a shift in revenue sources. He's seeing the traditional, you know, their traditional bread and butter profits sources declining and hasn't been weighing in any profits from something else or perhaps just generally because general news is so freely available that the general profits on providing f- news has bottomed out it's well you know declined somewhat i would be hard pressed to imagine that it's drastically bottomed out in any sort of way but we don't have any of those sorts of figures to look at to to make any sorts of comments on those but yeah all I can guess is they've seen smaller numbers than they expected or wanted and are trying to make them up so if if this uh, notion of paying for the medium is correct then then Murdoch's going to fail right? yes yeah 
definitely. Well, that'll be a, a, a big change for him. He's been very successful so far. Yes, yes, he has indeed. He's a very good entrepreneur. In Australia, Microsoft is finding more and more people are selling pirate copies of their software because their software keeps getting better and better. Well, okay, I'm joking about the last part, but <laughs> in effect, that's what's happening. They're, they're, they're really trying to crack down on this. They've increased the size of their investigation team and they're targeting auction sites for people who are selling counterfeit versions of Windows and Office. Yep. They've settled with 10 sellers or suspected sellers who have, they've con- Microsoft basically sent them letters saying that they could that you know they they could in fact exercise their right to claim for copyright infringement, mm-hmm. and all ten sellers admitted what they did and settled with Microsoft. Total of thirty eight thousand dollars in damages. Wow, that's a drop in the bucket compared to what I was you know had in my mind they would be going after. Well, you can guess- you can bet your bottom dollar if they took it to court they'd be asking for a lot more. Well, precisely. But it, of course, it's possible to go to court. Yeah. Well, it is. And you got all those, yeah. You get all those wonderful punitive damages, kickback sort of things in the American legal system, which you don't get in most others. Maybe that's why they've settled for this, because seeing as they were all Australian sellers, perhaps, you know, anything would have to be done in Australian courts. And I'm pretty sure you don't get punitive damages sort of things in Australian courts. Or at least not as easily. Uh, at least not as easily. Yeah, Perhaps so that's, that's why for such a small amount. Or they could be going after their, you know, their primary goal is to stop people selling copyrighted copyrighted software. Yeah, so if these are if so these ten are the biggest software we're talking about. Yeah, so if these ten are the biggest sellers, having settled for thirty eight thousand dollars, that's an average of roughly four thousand bucks each. Yeah, that you can bet your bottom dollar they're not going to be stupid enough to try it again. Well, yes, <laughs> they've basically been gan- handed a get out of jail for almost free. <laughs> pretty, pretty much. <laughs> how could yeah. you? How could you? Uh, you know, look that gift horse in the mouth. <laughs> it doesn't actually say in the story how many copies they they sold, but uh, you know, one of the people who bought a copy, uh, Lee Thomas, purchased a copy of Windows for two hundred and ten dollars from an mm. eBay seller uh, based in Queensland, Australia, and he discovered it was a counterfeit. And he had the transaction reversed once he returned his copy. Uh, mm. But he wanted to go further than that, and he wanted the person uh, prosecuted. So people are really getting brassed off by this, but you know, by getting well, caught precisely. up by this. Because you, well, you buy the software, you can't register it on the Microsoft site because it's pirated. Of course, because when you're purchasing what you think is a legitimate copy of something and you get something which is counterfeit, it's completely different from the you know people who go out and download a pirated version of something you're unwittingly taking part in something getting something which is counterfeit and so you're being ripped off you actually paid out the money for a legitimate copy and you should be getting a legitimate copy and so yeah of course it would it would you know anger you to be basically ripped off you paid for something which wasn't real so good on them do you think microsoft have gone about this the right way I think so. They've gotten their end results. They've they haven't gone after huge wads of cash. They've gone after stopping people from selling counterfeit software so that when you purchase online and pay money for your for the product, you're actually getting the real product. Yeah, so, I, I agree. I think uh, I think they've done the right thing. Mm. They got a good result. 
and yep. probably reasonably fast and cheaply as well. Yep. They didn't have to take it to court. And as I said earlier, you know, you can you can bet pretty much that these people are not going to try that again unless they're really stupid. Yeah. So it's a good result. And uh, yeah, it's you can understand Microsoft needing to concentrate more and more on these sorts of things because it's just happening more and more. Yeah, yeah, because it's in this situation, it's you're not, you know, buying into something which you know has come illegitimately. You're the the end user is thinking they're getting something legitimate. So if something goes wrong or anything like that, it's bad. It's you know, bad publicity, bad bad faith on for Microsoft for that user, and Microsoft's you know attempts to keep good faith with their users as much as possible. It's a big thing for business. Apparently, they're also looking in New Zealand as well. As they should. It's all over the place. Yeah, but... Yeah. Not quite as much as I... <laughs> There's more of it than I was expecting, though. So <laughs> I thought all of this sort of stuff had gone online. But wouldn't it be suspicious if you're buying a digital download of, of Windows? Possibly. But you can get digital downloads and installs of Windows through many different mediums. Education versions, you can... Oh, can you? Certain educational institutions have signed up to this agreement and the agreement allows them to offer cheap or free versions of Microsoft software to students and staff of the academic institution. And that's all done by download. It's not physical medium. You know, Microsoft have really pushed the academic side in the last four or five years. Traditionally, they, it's been an yeah. Apple domain for a long time and, and they're really, really pushing it now. Yeah, yeah, and they're offering some really great deals for their stuff. You can get really cheap. Well, if you're in the US or Europe or a couple of other countries, you can get really cheap deals on Windows 7 upgrades. Yeah. But as always, poor us here in New Zealand, we get left out again. (laughs) Not that I'm, you know, angsty about that, but I wanted my cheap upgrade. Absolutely. Well, people, you know, you, like you said, the deals they were offering are really good. They're, they're not just, oh, we'll knock 5% off the price and, you know, nothing, none of that rubbish. You know, they're no, doing, no, they're doing, doing good, massive, good yeah, massive, massive discounts. discounts. Yeah. And, and actually, I think it kind of helps them because students without any money may well be tempted to get a pirate copy. So well, precisely. This, yeah, this might be money that Microsoft eat. would never get. So it's yep. almost not really a loss. They're more gaining what they wouldn't have otherwise gained. They're gaining what they wouldn't have otherwise gained. They're getting that foothold into those markets. And, you know, students will generally stick with what they learn from, you know, if you're given a PC, you generally stick with PCs. It's what you know. It's what you grew up with. If you've been given a Mac, then you grew up with a Mac, then you generally stick with the Mac. I know that both camps have done a lot of advertising and things to try and pinch from each other's. But generally, those are two relatively set sort of groups. So it's really good business for Microsoft to be trying to grab those students, get them with the uh, cheap versions of Windows 7. I think it's, yeah, I think it's a good idea. I think it's a brilliant idea, and they should do it here. They they should do it here, (laughs) absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Now, this week, Google did something rather interesting. They did. Big news, big news from the the Google Chrome camp. Go on, tell us about it. Google has released their Chrome renderer as a plugin for the Internet Explorer web browsers. 
Brilliant. Brilliant. Indeed. They've called it the Google Chrome Frame. And not only will this plugin work with IE8, but it will also work with IE7 and IE6. Oh, now that's good because those browsers are notoriously insecure. Version 6 and version 7. Yeah, they're notoriously insecure, but they are also notoriously standards non-compliant. Absolutely. It's almost like Microsoft went out of its way to not meet any of the standards. (laughs) Precisely. IE6 and, to a lesser extent, IE7 are as if Microsoft gave the finger to the your web uh, web standards community and said, we're going to create our own language for web pages. And then in IE7, they realized that, wait a minute, <laughs> people didn't quite like that. That wasn't working right well. <laughs> yeah. Well, yes, you know, Google, yeah, Google. So this is, this is kind of cool. So what it is, is basically, as you said, it's a, it's a plugin and mm-hmm. it allows you to use, continue using Internet Explorer. Why you would, I don't know, but it, it allows you to continue using Internet Explorer but it will use the Google Chrome rendering engine. So you effectively kind of like using Chrome inside Internet Explorer. Yeah. This is really, really good in the situations where people use IE because they have to, like in a corporate environment. The IT department won't give them anything else, but people are having issues when they're browsing the web because IE is not standards compliant. So this kind of solves that. It it does. And... Web developers can take advantage of it by, you know, just sticking in a a little meta tag at the top of their pages that say, if you're using Internet Explorer and have the Chrome render plugin, use the Chrome render engine instead of Internet Explorer's render engine. Yeah, now they've done that because they, what they don't want to do is have, you know, there there are organizations. They don't want to hijack it. Yeah, they they don't want to hijack it. That's right. Yeah, because there are organizations that still run software that's designed for IE6 and IE7 uh, behavior. Mm-hmm. It, the problem, of course, if if Google hijacks the IE browser, those apps won't run. So that's, that, that's why they've done done that. That and if it hijacked the IE browser, I'm sure Microsoft would have some sort of recourse in that. I, I, I wonder if someone's going to hack it <laughs> and release an, another version that that kind of does hijack it. <laughs> that usurps the the Internet Explorer render yeah. engine and makes Internet Explorer basically an inter, Internet Explorer themed. Chrome. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> I'm sure the yeah, I'm sure Microsoft would ha- be able to have some sort of recourse in that, which is why Google has been, you know, they've been careful around that. That it's a, it's a plugin. You can choose what render engine it uses. It doesn't, you know, take over. So it's a kind of smart move from Google, eh? It is. It is. It means that the all of those users using Internet Explorer six and seven because they have to for whatever reasons can still view all of the modern web pages. They can take advantage of the security, which is, you know, Chrome 3, which the Chrome frame, I think, Chrome, the Chrome frame is based on Chrome 3, is far, far more secure than Internet Explorer 6 and 7. So well, they get to take advantage of that when they're just generally browsing the web, and then they can flick back to the Internet Explorer render engine when they're doing whatever it is with their business web app or something which was written for Internet Explorer 6. This is almost embarrassing for Microsoft, really, to, to have another competing browser create a plugin that have been, effectively turns their browser it, into theirs. It really is. It really is. And I think it's, you know, it's a, it's a um, 
it's somebody else coming up with a, a, a Band-Aid for the problem of the fact that there are still so many instances of Internet Explorer 6 still active. This kind of reminds me of the, the guy who created a, a patch for an Adobe floor that was outstanding for so long. And he eventually created his own patch for it and released it on the internet and millions of people downloaded it. Mm-hmm. And Adobe were rather embarrassed about it because here they were basically doing nothing about it. And this guy came out with this patch and basically said, here, we've pat- I've patched it because uh, Adobe won't. And this is almost kind of what's happening here, although it's more embarrassing because it's a competitor. It's Google saying, here, don't worry, guys, we'll fix your browser for you. Mm. That's effectively it- what they're saying by doing this. Well, yeah, it's kind of what they're saying. It's, well, it's all about the fact that these, you've got these three different versions of Internet Explorer and they are still really prevalent out there. You don't find that with most of the other web browsers because, you know, you fire up Firefox and there's an update. Firefox tells you, hey, there's an update, patch me. Or, hey, there's an update, download the new one. And it'll do it all for you. Same with Chrome does something similar. I have no idea about Safari. You'll have to tell me whether or not Safari alerts you when you fire it up. Well, no, Safari's a bit more like uh, IE or Windows. It relies on the system software. It relies on the system update. Which does by default run it once a week, but it doesn't yeah, it doesn't just check itself. One of the cool things about Firefox is that you fire it up and it lets you know that there's an update. First, there's a security update, um, and it's simple and easy. One click, and it will download the new one, install it, do all of its thing, and blah, blah, bing, comes back up, and you go on using, really user-friendly, really easy to do. And, yeah, so it's always patched. It's always currently secure, and it's always the new version. <laughs> so you don't quite get the, the same, you know, to the same extent legacy versions of the software hanging around on people's computers. Well, uh, you know, some Swiss researchers actually found, found exactly that, that people who run Chrome or Firefox are more likely to have the most up-to-date version than those who run Internet Explorer or Safari. Mm, and it, they, they put it down the, to, to that very fact. That, that yeah, relying on the, the operating system's update facility to update those other, you know, additions, Internet, internet browsers, is... is is silly, really. I think Safari and Internet Explorer should take a leaf out of the other Internet browsers' books and have their updates. They can still be, you know, facilitated through the same mediums of the the Windows update or you know whatever the the Apple update thing does. But to have the web browser when it opens check itself against those systems to see, you know, am I the latest one? Am I fully patched and then to alert the user with a nice simple would you like to update now and click yes and let it do its thing would mean that you get rid of all of these silly legacy versions sitting around unpatched because they've been discontinued and you know well that might all- be fine for the home market but for the for the business market where there are instances of ap- applications that are designed to run on on IE6 have it so you can turn it off to- you can turn it off. You can turn off the auto-update, auto-checking in Firefox. Have yeah, it in yeah. Internet Explorer. You can just turn it off if yeah, you, you need turn to it keep off, but you're not going to solve six. Absolutely, but you still, you still, there's still a market then for this Google plugin because you still get people who are browsing from work on IE only because they have to use IE. So those people will still, you know, it's not going to solve the whole issue. And well, no, and, no. What will solve that issue is those businesses getting out of the Stone Age. 
Yes. And hiring some developers uh, to, you know, update their applications to work <laughs> in a framework that is properly standards compliant and, you know, cross-browser compatible. Oh, what a perfect world that would be. I know. I, I, I am a dreamer. <laughs> well, you know, it's to be to be fair, Microsoft is making a lot of progress with IE eight so in, in that area. So it's it's looking good, and and the reason that's significant is because they have eighty whatever it is percent of the browser market. So they do have the largest market share in the web browser market that you could possibly way. ever yeah. imagine. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, you know, Microsoft don't really like the idea of Google releasing their plugin. And no, they, no. They've, they've cut, Microsoft have come out and, and have told people, don't install it. It's going to make IE less secure. And, well, well you know, there is some truth to their claims, well, there's, but it's there, very, very much overstated. Yes, it, it's very much overstated. There's, there's definitely some truth to the claims because while Microsoft can control the you know, patching per version um, of their own software, they can't, you know, control the patching of that Google Chrome plugin. So if you don't update the plugin and the plugin has a, has a vulnerability, then you've got that vulnerability and it brings that vulnerability into IE. But that being said, the counterpoint to that is if you're running the Google Chrome framework plugin on Internet Explorer 6 or Internet Explorer 7, then uh, Chrome version 3 is far more secure than IE6 or IE7. So you're actually going to win in that situation. Yeah, but they've got a legitimate point for IE8, which they are they are doing their, um, you know, they are putting a lot of effort into. Yeah, and I yeah, you're right. IE8 is going is very secure, and we know that Google Chrome does have its flaws as well. Though you know, again though, they have overstated it. They've said that if you have IE8 with the Google Chrome plugin, you're twice as likely to get malware attacks. It's not true. You don't just double not, the figures. That's, no, you don't just double the figures. They that's just are, an outright lie. Yeah, but you know, you can see where they're coming from when they're saying that because it's it's a piece of software. It's a plugin that they can't control. That's unlike the other plugins which use the Microsoft render engine. It's it it circumvents that and. That's what Microsoft can control when they do their updates. So you can see where they're coming from, but they can't really back up what they're saying. Well, not by the figures can, twice as much. Yeah. That's, that's yeah. the thing. You, can, you can't put a figure to it like that. You don't no. just add, add up the, the two values and say it's, it's twice as much. Now, no. you know, this, this whole story made me think, wouldn't it be cool if someone, and maybe this has been done, I don't know, uh, maybe some of our listeners out there could tell us, but wouldn't it be cool if someone developed a, a browser or, or a version of an existing browser like Google Google Chrome using mm-hmm. a Flash interface as an Adobe Flash. So you go to a website in IE and you've mm-hmm. got yourself a little virtual browser running inside a Flash. Mm. Wouldn't that be cool? So basically a, a Flash as based long as they made it properly browser. Accessible. Flash is everywhere. Flash is everywhere. Uh, I, I'm, I'm not saying as in a whole new browser that people would use simply for the sake of using it, but as a workaround for those who don't want to use IE. So they, although they're using IE to go to the site, it's really the Flash applet that takes over. And and inside that Flash applet uh, is Google Chrome. I get it. I see what you're saying yeah. here. So basically so what Google's to, done except yeah, but um, cross-platform. 
Yeah. Well, it, I hadn't thought of that. Yeah, it would be cross-platform well, by, yeah, by definition. Almost everything, almost everything can view yeah. Flash. And so, yeah, that would be very interesting. Mm. And, and there's no install. It's because it's it's Flash, you know. You, exactly. You've got Flash, or most computers do. So yeah. you, you just go to the site and start. You, maybe someone's done this. I don't know. We'd have to have a look. But Yeah, do a search for it. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do that. I'll do that <laughs> in the break. Now, some new research has come out saying that text speak you know, like when you shorten words so you can use them on your t- instant message or over your cell phone. Uh, some new research has come out saying that this is actually a good brain workout for kids. Which kind of goes against other research that says it's actually really bad. Well, yes. I think they are looking at two different things, though. This set of research is saying that it's a good brain workout because, you know, it's like problem solving. It's like learning a different language. And... So you're you're giving your brain a workout for that. The other research was saying that text speech is destroying children's ability to, you know, properly communicate, use the English language, do other sorts of things like that. So they are two slightly different things. Because you could just do brain teasers. That would be better, wouldn't it? Because then you're not... You're Precisely. Not, you're not you're ruining not, your, your spelling skills. You're not chipping away at that. Which is exactly. What you does. could get the same sort. Of, you could get the same sort of workout doing the crossword. You could get same sort of workout learning a different language, learning a foreign language instead of, you know, that way you'd still be getting the brain workout, which is a good thing, but you wouldn't be doing anything detrimental to your communications skills. So, but when you as, send text messages on your cell phone, do you contract your words? Uh, no, I am quite fluent in using the predictive text on my cell phone and I will text in full. See, I'd love to do that. The, the problem I have is that my phone's predictive text is, is very clumsy to use, so I don't use it. But then to spell it out in full takes so long that mm-hmm. I, I do shorten a few words like the word four becomes the digit four and things like that. Other than that, I don't really use that text speak and I don't like it. Yeah, I I hate seeing it in informal pub informal use. Oh yeah, that's, that's what I dislike. No, I just like seeing something that's written by somebody for submission, and it's got the contractions that you use in text speak. It's just yeah, it, it's grating. <laughs> well, the thing is, it's you know we talked about this you know this research saying it's a workout. That's the very reason I don't want to do it. If I want a brain workout, I'll do Sudoku or the crossword or something like that. I don't want to work out when I when I get a message on my phone. I want to understand it then and there. I don't want to work yeah. out. <laughs> it's called, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's instant messaging for a reason. <laughs> Someone should develop an application that, if it detects text speak in an incoming message, it sends a thing back automatically saying rejected, spell properly, or something. <laughs> that would be funny. That would or, be rather annoying for people, but <laughs> <laughs> Or you could um develop one which automatically translated it for you. Oh now now we're thinking. Yeah. That's kinda cool. And Babble it only Fish sends it back a, if it, Babblefish if, needs a text speech version. <laughs> well, yeah, actually, there there's an idea for Babblefish. Yeah. And by the way, speaking of Babblefish, did you notice that it's been moved over to Yahoo about it was probably about a year ago now? No. Yeah, I if you go to, it used to be, well, way back when it used to be digital, didn't it? Um, uh For a while it was Vista. Yeah, that was after digital. Ah. Yeah, then it went to AltaVista. And it's, in fact, um, to be honest, it's one of those tools that I found that the new generation of internet users don't know about. 
It, it's yeah. us oldies that, that know about it. If <laughs> how you, do you, you ask <laughs> your average 20-something-year-old, 20 20 and 22-year-old, uh, how to you know translate something on the net, and they'll give you these different things, like they'll talk about Google, they'll talk about Windows widgets and things, but or gadgets or whatever they call them, but they, they never refer to Babelfish. They just don't know about it. Those of us pushing the 30s <laughs> remember Babelfish fondly and how it helped us in many different conversations. Alrighty. Well, look, you know, I think we've just about done our international stories for this week. What do you say? Uh, I think so too. Should we call this segment a wrap? Uh, I'd say we call it a wrap. Alrighty. Let's take a short break. When we come back, we'll look at the New Zealand stories for this week. Don't go away. Welcome back. Now, before we get into the New Zealand story, you've just noticed that Google has two L's, right? Yes, Google has indeed got two L's on its front page. In fact, they're not really L's, are they? They no. look like L's. What are they? They're ones. Apparently, it's time to celebrate Google's 11th birthday. Woohoo! Happy birthday, Google! Happy birthday, Google. <laughs> yeah. And still going strong, we, we might add as well. Yeah. Still going strong. In fact, I don't know that Alta Vista lasted 11 years. <laughs> I don't think it did. Wow, that's kind of cool. All right, so the New Zealand story for this week. A blogger has effectively been told to stop advising on immigration because they haven't got a license, basically. Yeah. What's with that? What's so, with that? I'll well, give you a little... it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because Well, what's advice? I know. I'll give you a little bit of background. A blogger who came to New Zealand from Britain has been warned to stop giving immigration advice on her blog or she will face prosecution. The reason for that is that under the Immigration Advisors Licensing Act, you have to be a licensed advisor to give immigration advice. And what they're claiming is that on her blog, she gives immigration advice and that's illegal. But the question is, what is advice? Because she says, I'm just speaking my mind. Her name's Helen Winterbottom. She's got a blog, avalonsguide.com, and she's saying, I'm just speaking my mind. So what constitutes advice? It's a, it's a very good question. She says she's never heard of anything like that before. She reckons we're the only country with, with such a law. Well, quite possibly. We're the only people who require licenses for people to give immigration advice. It's kind of, you know, it's kind of weird because... In, the, in a way, it seems ridiculous. It seems like, well, you know, surely you can say whatever you want and, advise, and you know, rec- make, make recommendations, surely. Mm-hmm. But on the flip side, we, if you think about it, other areas, other disciplines have, have restrictions. You can't give medical advice without a license. You Precisely. Can't, you can't give legal advice without a license. Yeah. So it, it, it's kind of, it, it's tricky. I don't know. It, I don't know where, yeah. how to think about this one. It, it kind of confuses me in a way because it's just one of those things. Why should mm. it be so protected? I guess the reason they have these different licensing acts and different licensing authorities to cover these sorts of things is to make sure that if you are being given advice, that well, that if you are receiving advice, you can be pretty sure that the person who's giving you that advice really knows what they're talking about. They're not just making it up as they go along because they like the sound of their voice or, you know, they're venting about something. They actually know what they're talking about and they've got a piece of paper which says that they know what they're talking about. So 
There is that guarantee you get for Shouldn't it be up to the person who's looking for advice to check whether the the person yeah, because you've, you've got the flip side of it. The buyer beware. If, yeah, if they are giving, if they're actually giving and offering advice, you know, those sorts of things, and they really should be covered by this licensing act. But if they are, as this person claims they are, just offering a support forum where people can discuss, you know, immigration things they've had and get stuff off their chest and that sort of thing, just like there are support forums for all kinds of different things, including, as you said, there's support forums for talking about different stuff from the law and from medical, you know, different diseases and support forums for people with different specific illnesses and that sort of thing. If it's that sort of thing, then it really is not, shouldn't be falling shy of a advisor's licensing act. But if if she's actually giving advice to people, then yeah. Well, she how do you does define advice? That That's the thing. How do you define advice? I think it's more in the way that she states it. If she states it as if it's relatively authoritative, you know, or this is how it was done for me. This is how I reckon you should do it. This is how you should get past this thing. You, this is how. And that's really her giving advice, her stating something that she says, this is, this is a fact, this is how you do it. Then she is giving advice. But if it's a support forum and it's people going, well, this, it happened to me this way or, you know, it happened to me this way and I did this and it happened to me this way and I did this, then that's really, that's not an advice. That is a just coming off your mind, speaking your mind on a blog and getting support and discussing stuff openly in a forum. But if, it, if it's more how it's phrased, really. Well, she says, I can't believe that in New Zealand we have a law that makes it a criminal offence to offer advice to someone. It really Aha. takes away our basic right to freedom of speech. But then there are laws about, yeah, giving medical advice. Well, as I said, yeah, things. that's exactly right. There's, there's damn good reasons for it. You can't claim to be giving medical advice to somebody without having a piece of paper that says you really know what you're talking about. Because, yeah, somebody takes your advice and then carks it, then... A spokesman for a group called Kiwi Immigration Watch, Alan Hughes, said the act was daft and against the Bill of Rights and that they're going to be supporting Helen's case. It's, you know, part of that that grey area that the internet helps open up. This area, it's not new. This grey area has existed for ages, ever since the act was created. This is just highlighting it, as the internet is prone to do, highlighting these grey areas and things when you give people a forum to get out there and speak their minds. Well, I tell you um, what, speaking of grey areas, the one I'm waiting to surface is the one about auctions. Now, in the Auctioneers Act, it says you have to have an auctioneer's license to run an auction. The auction sites, they get around this by saying, we are not auctioneers. We're just providing some technology for people to sell their equipment. Yeah. But then you can come back to them and say, yeah, but these you're still calling these auctions, right? So are they auctions? And they say, oh, no, they're not auctions because if you read the Auctioneers Act, it states that a minimum of six people have to be present at a venue, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. So the next question is, aren't they then breaching the, the Fair Trading Act because they're, they're saying they're, they're offering auctions, but they're not auctions? Yeah. It's not an oh, auction. Yeah, you've got to love technicalities. I know. But you can see what I'm saying. Hey, if it's an auction, it's a breach of the Auctioneers Act. 
If it's not an auction, it's a breach of the Fair Trading Act, surely. Precisely, but it depends on your definition of auction. Well, the Auctioneers Act says what that is. In which case, but anyway, they're not. That's one of those (laughs) great areas. They're an auction. There's a difference. Yeah, there's a difference between auctions and auctions, right? Yep, obviously. Right. I just didn't realize it. <laughs> you, you're going to love it. It's, <laughs> those are those gray areas that's, that... Well, yeah, it's those tons of... It's it's where legislation is not caught up with yeah. changing face of technology. Absolutely. And, yeah, it's when you get into these gray areas and it's how you get out of the gray area which determines whether or not you've done something good or whether or not you've created some horrible piece of draconian legislation. What I thought you were going to say which one was going to be coming up, is something else that was recently in the news, and that is, I think it's I think it's in America, it's just off the top of my head, the people attempting to make websites which are promoting body dysmorphic disorders, you know, bulimia, anorexia, as lifestyle choices, trying to make websites that support those and promote those illegal. Oh, they're wanting to make web- those websites illegal. Yeah, on the fact that they are, you know, doing exactly what you were talking about before. You've got to have a medical background to provide medical advice. They're saying they're promoting a positively anorexia and bulimia, incredibly damaging body dysmorphic disorders, as positive choices, lifestyle choices. Oh, I see. For people to make. And just like the stuff about websites which promote suicide and euthanasia, they're wanting to, you know, make, and just like websites that promote, you know, other sorts of indecent acts and pornography of a illegal variety, illegal. So all these things come under one category, and that is promoting self-harm. Mm, because they are. Promoting self-harm or promoting harm to others. But how is that grey anyway? Because wouldn't that be a no-brainer? Yes, those websites should be illegal because, you know. But then you get into the whole freedom of speech. Yeah, there are some pro-suicide people, you know, people who think suicide should be, uh, or even uh, to a lesser extent, uh, a less extreme extent, uh, euthanasia. There are are Mm -hmm. a lot of people out there who support euthanasia and think it should be legalised. So what you're saying is shouldn't those people be able to speak their minds and, and create websites that, that talk about these issues and promote it? Mm. And the, the people who say no are the people are saying that uh, no because they, you're providing information that can sway the more suggestible members of society uh, into doing stuff which will harm themselves and promoting that self-harm as being a good thing you start to get into some really, really nitty, gritty, grey areas when you put uh, stuff to protect people from self-harm and harm to others versus people's rights to freedom of speech and freedom of information. Yeah, that, that's, those, that's they a- are very contradictory things, but yeah. they are still, they are both very important. And it's, yeah, it's that huge balancing act and that massive grey void between the two of them that you've got to wade through here. And some of it does, as you said right at the beginning of this, come down to common sense. Some things just are inherently wrong. <laughs> you, well, now, that's, this is going to be a good philosophical just, discussion. Yeah, <laughs> there are some things which just are inherently not right. 
they they're not good when you get into this philosophical discussion of of good and evil and rights and wrongs and naughty and nice some things are just not nice this is just another one of those areas where it's so difficult to legislate in certain areas as you said these are these gray areas that make it really really hard and the internet is has one of the things the internet has done massively is opened these gray areas it has become the the forum for delving into these gray areas and it is what's you know shining light on all of these subjects which you know previously you would have you know never been thought of people wouldn't thought have thought of a community group meeting you know down at the community hall to support each other with their promoting of anorexia and seeing just how skinny like a skeleton they look and they're so pretty <laughs> that just would not have happened without the internet Absolutely. the internet has provided this anonymous open to everybody accessible way of grabbing and highlighting all of these gray areas of the fight between what is right and what is somebody's right, you know, and what's right for somebody. Is that really, you know, right for everybody? Well, that's what makes it so hard. That's that's what makes it really hard because it's it's what makes it so very, very gray and you know, everybody's got their own moral compasses and yeah, is it up to somebody else to dictate whether or not you can or cannot? But then who protects the people who don't, who are susceptible to, you know, being influenced? Children, well, people who are incredibly gullible. Well, who you know, protects them from being harmed by these, by the expression of self of somebody else? Well, children is an interesting one because they are susceptible by no fault of their own. It's just the they fact that their brains no have not been fully developed. Exactly. Yeah, their they, brains aren't fully developed. Their brains are wired to suck in the information, yeah. to learn, to grow, to take in the stuff. And these sorts of sites promoting body dysmorphic disorders that are incredibly detrimental to a, a growing child's health is detrimental to the child. So should who's going to protect them? Uh, it's the same thing when you talk about access to pornographic material, which is why they have all those net filters and, you know, net nanny and safe surf and all that sort of stuff. It's, yeah, <laughs> the internet is a giant pot of gray areas. And it's one of the things which makes it so beautiful. And it's one of the things that makes it so terrifying for so many people. Well summed up. On that yeah. note, I think that wraps up the show. <laughs> That's episode number 36. Brett, I want to thank you very much for hosting the show with me once again. Always a pleasure, Edwin. And thank you to everyone at home listening to us on the podcast. And we'll see you all again next week for episode 37. Till then, take care. Bye-bye. Happy surfing. Happy surfing.